sail across the water to come to the place where he could conquer this seemingly unconquerable treasure. Before he set sail, he decided to grab all of his, his team together and say to them, hey, listen, you know what we're about to do. Do you realize what this treasure could do for your, you personally and even your grandkids, your kids, into your future? This treasure could make you generationally different. So he got them all stirred up, and they all got in their boats, and they took off. As they got there, they landed to the shores that they were supposed to get to. And when they got on the shores, they, they parked all the boats, they got on the shore, and instead of just running in and conquering the land, they decided that he would, he would put them all on the shore and talk to them a little bit and say, I want to remind you what we're here for. Because how many of you know that oftentimes, when the middle of uh, traveling around from where you started to where you're going to go, sometimes you need to be, remember what the vision is. So Cortez grabbed all 700 and some people out on the shore, and he said, this is what we're about to do. We're going to go and conquer. We're going to win. We're going to get this 600-year-old treasure that many have tried and failed up to this point. Before we go, though, he says, burn the boats. Burn the boats. Burn all 11 boats right now. And all of the people on the shore said to themselves and to him, wait, what? Burn the boats. If we burn the boats, there's no way out. He said, we're here to conquer. There's no way back. The only way we will go back is in their boats because we've conquered. And if not, we will die. There's something about stepping out into a place called faith that oftentimes we fail to get to because we want to make sure that we hedge our bets. We oftentimes say things like, we'll take the step in faith. We'll, we'll, we'll get in the boats and travel across the body of water, but we're going to leave the boats there just because... In case we need to get home, you know? I mean, we get home. Cortez says to all of the people on the shore, burn the boats. We're here for a job and we're gonna get the job done. In other words, we're, we're here to do something because this is what we are called to do. We're gonna step into this thing and we're gonna give all that we have to this thing and we will either succeed or die trying. I wanna talk to you this morning about faith about stepping into something you can't see with a confidence in something you are absolutely sure of. Will you join me this morning as we pray? God, thank you for an opportunity to get into the Bible and find out what you have to say. You're amazing. We need you a bunch in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in week three of a series entitled Selah. Selah. Well, we're talking about the idea of finding peace in the middle of storms. Experiencing the peace that God has for you in the middle of the craziness of life. Uh, by the way, our screen up on this side is our projectors having a hard time. We just put these up here, so we'll get it fixed this next week. So if you can stretch your eyes that way. You'll see up on the screen that there is, it's a distance away, up on the screen right behind me, you see that there's this uh, musical notation of a, of a quarter note rest but above it, there's what's called a fermata. A fermata, or bird's eye, if you're a musician at all, you know what that is. It literally is, means, to, means to pause. It means to, to pause as long as the conductor leaves their hands up. Or to do whatever it is that the notation beneath the fermata is telling you to do. Whether it's to sing the entire note the whole time, or whether it's to do what this particular notation is, which is to rest. See, if there's one thing our world needs more than anything right now, is a moment of rest. Just a moment of peace. It doesn't take long to talk to anyone that you bump into, whether it's a friend from a long time ago, whether it's a friend you just saw this morning that you've seen just yesterday. 
And we ask each other often, so what are you up to? What are you doing? What's going on with your life? And it always seems to be only answerable by the answer of some sort of activity. Rarely do we ever say, in fact, I don't know if I've ever remembered somebody saying, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm just resting. I'm just in a state of absolute peace. (laughs) The Bible uses the word selah. Selah is this this notation in the Bible that often shows up in the Psalms to literally mean to pause and ponder, to think about what it is that was just spoken, to pause long enough to take it in and to think about, and and maybe even think about it in such a way as to apply it to our lives. Selah, to pause. Well, I tell you, if I could, there's a a part of me that just wants to stop the whole service and say, everyone, we're going to shut the lights down and just take a nap. Yeah, look at you, just like, yes. All these young mommies are like, in Jesus' name. <laughs> I went and got a coffee this morning out at Fox Hollow, and the, the gal out there, she's a new mommy, and she's like, Our, my baby slept five hours last night. And I was like, a girl, way, way to go, that's awesome. I said, but by the way, let me ask you this, young mommy of probably 20-something. I said, when did you ever think in your life that you would have been giddy about getting five hours of sleep? And she said, like, never, but now it's from Jesus. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Five consistent hours. I remember one time, by the way, uh, new daddies or new daddies-to-be, never say this to a new mommy, ever. This is what I said. Polly and I had our first baby, Jansen, and I remember uh, I was working crazy hours, and I came home, and I remember one Saturday, I finally got to, to get some sleep, in my opinion. So I, I literally went to bed, and we were doing the two hours at a time, Jansen waking up kind of thing. And so I remember waking up the next morning, and I said, Honey, that's amazing. He slept through the whole night. She said, uh, You slept through the whole night. He woke up three times, yeah. So uh, don't say that to your wife. It doesn't go well. Peace. Give your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 14. Boy, if our world is in a state of anything, it's in a state of no peace. Let me tell you that. Matthew 14. I, I want to use today a different... Um, I've been talking out of the, the, the book of Mark chapter 6, when we've been talking a little bit about this storm that was encountered by Jesus and his disciples when they crossed over from one side of the lake to another. And even though they were on the Sea of Galilee, I want to talk about a, 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 the same lake, but a different storm. The, the same lake, but a different experience. The same lake, but a different time frame. This particular storm that was, we're talking about today happened probably, my guess, is just days or weeks after the initial one that we've been talking about the last two weeks. But the Matthew chapter 14, it's also written in, uh, gosh, it's in Mark, and it's also in John. And, and that sometimes they leave some detail out. Now, now, some of you who are Bible readers, ever, if you ever read the same story in another translation or another uh, part of another gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you think there's some details left out, remember that Bible writers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote down through the author's eyes what it is that they saw in that moment. In other words, they were, they were writing a letter or they were writing a, a, a documentation or they were, they were coming up inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what it is that they perceived in that moment. Some of you might say, well, I saw some things in one gospel that weren't included in another or some that were emphasized in one and not in another. Does it mean that there's contradiction? No, it was from the perspective of the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those particular things down. So we see in the Mark or in the Matthew particular passage here in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus, the Bible says, has just finished, just heard up in chapter 14 in the beginning about uh, John the Baptist being beheaded and dying, obviously. In the process of that, remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. 
You remember that? Remember Mary's cousin Elizabeth had a baby named John? John was the forerunner to who Jesus would be. Uh, and all that to say, so John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus says in, John, or in Matthew chapter 14, a little further down, in verse 13, it says this. As soon as Jesus heard the news, what news? The news of his cousin being killed. Now, you got to know that Jesus was completely God, but he was also completely human. What does that mean? It means that Jesus experienced pain. He experienced grief. He experienced hard things. Uh, look at what it says right here in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Jesus heard the news. He went off by himself in a boat to a remote place alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed by land from many villages. Vast crowds were there as he stepped from the boat. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. By the way, in this particular passage, it says that Jesus got into a boat alone. Literally, it was, it was the, the, uh, the emphasis of the author was trying to say that Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. But he really went away with his disciples. So Jesus is in a boat. He gets away with his disciples, trying to catch his breath, probably being sad that his cousin was killed. And now he's just going to just get a minute. I'm just going to get a second to catch my breath, to get on the other side where there's no people. And here it says that as they were on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, well, we know at least 5,000 of his closest friends walked around the shore and met him on the other side. How many of you know that if you were in the boat and you were rowing and you saw the crowds, isn't there anything inside of you that would just go and just turn to the other way and just want to go back and go, nah, 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 right? I mean, I love that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus continued on to the shore where he was met by 5,000 plus of his closest friends. In the middle of his grief, in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his loss, Jesus shows up. It says he healed their sick. By the way, we don't see a lot of places in the Bible that talk about um, grief. Can I just tell you that grief is difficult? Grief hurts. Grief can come about in all kinds of loss. Loss of a loved one to death, the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage, the loss of something in your life, some sort of an expectation that was no longer there. And let me tell you this, it hurts you like it hurts you. Your grief is different from others' grief. Remember the Bible says every heart knows its own pain. You're, you're, if you ever come up to somebody and they have experienced loss the same that you, and they say, I know exactly how you feel. Can I just be honest with you and tell you, no, you don't. You don't know exactly how they feel. You might have an idea of how they must be feeling, but you don't know exactly because every heart knows its own pain. Uh, just real briefly, I, I kind of want to leave the script for a minute and tell you a little bit about Jesus understanding grief. Grief is hard. And some of you today are experiencing grief, the loss of something in your life that someone near you might say, ah, that's nothing. Get over it. But it's real to you. Let me, just from this, this passage real quickly, let me just show you a couple of things that Jesus did that, that helped deal with grief. First thing Jesus did was acknowledge his loss. If you're, if you're having grief in your life, the loss of a job, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a friend, the loss of a, uh, someone loved that you loved who's no longer with us through death, Grief. The first thing Jesus did was acknowledge his loss. He simply, he, he acknowledged the loss. He said what it was. Far too often, we will just suppress it, push it down, act like it wasn't, push on, be the bold soldier, and just move on, and as if to ignore the, the obvious. Jesus acknowledged his loss. He acknowledged the fact that he was dealing with the loss of someone he loved. That's so imperative for us as we journey our life that in grief, we're going to have to acknowledge it. The second thing Jesus did was he kept people he loved near him. 
He kept people that he loved near him. I love this, that Jesus got into a boat with 12 of his closest friends. And he said, guys, let's go to the other side. In other words, Jesus didn't, you know what happens in grief oftentimes? In grief, our first move is to pull away from everyone, to isolate ourselves. To, to, to pull away. And if you can't physically do it, sometimes people will isolate through chemicals. And they'll take some sort of a chemical, drugs, alcohol, something, and they'll take it as if to somehow isolate themselves and get inside themselves and just be alone for themselves because I just need to catch my breath. Let me tell you, there's no way to grieve. Jesus pulled away with some of his closest friends. Basically, he pulled away with his accountability group and said, guys, listen, we got to get away because i got to process this. This is hard. If you want to process life, get away with some people that you love. Don't pull away from people that you love. That's a clear sign of, a, of an improper or an unhealthy way to grieve is by isolation and pulling yourself away. The third thing Jesus did is this. He drew near to the Father. Why did Jesus go away? He went away to be with his disciples for sure to get some, uh, so, some clarity on what God was doing. But more than anything else, the Bible says he pulled away so he could be alone with his Father. He went away. You know what he didn't do? He didn't run from God. He ran to God. He ran to him and he said, God, I need you in the middle of this hard time. I need you in the middle of this loss. I love what Jesus did. He showed us how to grieve. He showed us how to grieve. Now, there are other things you can add to that, I'm certain. But he acknowledged his loss. He kept close to the people he loved and he also drew near to the Father. Now, go down to verse 22. Verse 22, it says this. Immediately after this, so Jesus, while he's there on the shore, there are several thousand people there. We know that there were at least 5,000 men which means some of them had spouses, so there are maybe 10,000. Some of the spouses probably had children, so there could have been upwards to 15, 10 to 15,000 humans on the shore that day. That's a lot. They showed up with nothing to eat. Jesus shows up grieving with his disciples and says, let's pray for them, let's heal their sick, and then they realize, well, we're hungry. And just before this particular passage, he feeds, the Bible says, 5,000 men. And obviously, and they had leftovers. I mean, it's crazy. He just, from, out from nothing, five loaves, two fish, feeds all these people. Then after that moment, it says in verse 22, immediately after this, he made his disciples get back into a boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Afterward, Jesus went up in the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land for strong winds had arisen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him, they screamed in terror, thinking it was a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. It's all right, he said. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Peter called out to him, Lord, if it's really you, then tell me to come to you by walking on the water. All right, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat, walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he, took, but when he looked around and he saw the high waves <coughs> Excuse me. He was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Instantly, Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. You don't have much faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Remember, this is the same Sea of Galilee that we were talking about before. The same Sea of Galilee that even today, has storms that show up on it in, in rapid fashion. 
This is the same Sea of Galilee that somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. any given day in this, in this the, 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 the bowl of Galilee, if you will. Remember, this is 680 feet below sea level. It's, it's, it's the lowest sea-leveled freshwater lake on the planet, studied by, by, by many. In fact, it's the most studied lake on the planet from what I hear. L- literally, it, that they, there's so much study as to why, because the weather patterns are so erratic. That even today, they can be on the Sea of Galilee and within 20 minutes go from a placid, calm lake to 5 to 10 foot swells. Just absolutely crazy. Even today, today it's happened. This is that same Sea of Galilee. The difference in this story from the other story was, the other story in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. We see Jesus with them in the middle of a storm. This storm's just a little different because Jesus isn't with them in the storm. In fact, Jesus sent them into a storm. Wait, what? Jesus sent his disciples into a storm. And he stood on the shore and watched. There, that finally confirms how you feel about God, isn't it? <laughs> finally confirms that, that obviously he sends you into trials and then sits there and just watches you squirm. Because that's, that's kind of how we view life at times. Thanks, Elisha. Sometimes we see that way. We get this idea that somehow God doesn't love us enough. And somehow he's just watching us squirm. He, he got us started on our trek and sits back and says, now figure it out, buddy. It's just somehow God doesn't seem to care. There's so much more to this story. Jesus sent them into the storm to be sure. Why would Jesus send them into a storm? Why would Jesus send you into a storm? Why would he send you into the biggest, deepest trials of your life, seemingly just on the shores watching? Some of you actually think that Jesus has sent you into a storm and then turned his back on you and then watched you just flail around. Why would Jesus send them into a storm? Jesus wanted them to experience Selah. Jesus wanted them to experience Selah. He wanted them to experience the calm in a storm that can only happen because they experienced the storm. Jesus wanted them to see Selah because he, he, he knew that they would never know Selah until they understood the strength of a storm. You may never know peace without the storm. You may never know the peace that God has for you except that a storm hits you. Some of you are finding yourself in a moment right now trying to wrestle your, your way through life and you're realizing that you keep bumping into storms and forgetting that there's these moments, these calm, this, this sila that God has made available for you, this, this pausing to ponder, to, to think about, that, that God's intention for you is to find peace in the middle of a storm. I just have this picture of Jesus walking out on the water. Can I tell you? I don't think Jesus was out there trying to navigate the wind and the waves as he's walking around on the water. I got a funny feeling that where Jesus was walking was completely calm. I got a funny feeling that Jesus was walking out on the water and it was calm. I don't think his wind or hair was blowing. And his, I, don't, I think he was completely bone dry. I think Jesus walked out on the water. Why? Because he's God. He's not a God. He's not one of many gods. He is God. He walked out on the water. Why? Because there's no storm too big for him. There is no storm too big for him. Your storm is not too big for him. He wants us to learn to walk in faith. What are, let me give you three quick characteristics of faith. First of all, faith is a substance. Faith is a substance. I don't know if you realize that, but in the Greek, the word faith is actually a noun. Literally means something. Remember a noun, a person, place, a thing? 
Right? Is it the idea, right? You remember the cartoon? Right? The idea that a noun, literally in Greek, it means that it's a substance. It's something that can be held on to. Faith is a substance of things not yet seen. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man can boast. It's a gift of God, a substance. It's, a, it's something that you can hang on to, something that you can absolutely believe in. Uh, my little girl, my daughter, she, she's pregnant, right? So I think, can I tell you this? I have faith. I have faith that in November, at some point, she's going to give birth to a human. I just have a funny belief. She's not delivering a puppy, right, in Jesus' name. It's a human being. Uh, and it's so funny because I, I always joke with, and again, please forgive me, dear moms. I could not handle it. I do not know how you have a human moving around inside of you, and it's like, okay. And my wife's like, I love the feeling. And I'm like, that's, that's like you swallowed a rat. Like, how, 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 how could that be something? You, I love it. And so my daughter's got this thing in her head. She hears me saying it's like swallowing a rat. She's like, it's a human. She goes, Dad, why did you ever tell me that? <laughs> I was like, this is a human, honey, I promise. You know, she's like, ah! Right, so I have faith in November we're going to see a human come out, right? There's this little human. I can't wait. That's a substance of something that I'm believing to be true that I cannot see. Faith is a substance of something hoped for, not wished for, not I sure hope it's a human, it's not a lizard, but like, like it's a real life human. It's, it's, it's an absolute confident belief. My son looked like a lizard. <laughs> Sorry. He did. I had a hard time. He came out and I was like, wow, baby. Hmm. Sorry. My wife hates, she hates that. She's not here. <laughs> Heather, don't tell her, please. Here we go. Faith is a substance. Number two, faith is also a requirement. I don't know if you realize that. This walk with God, faith is actually a requirement. It's a substance, but it's also a requirement. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. It is impossible. Everyone say impossible. It is impossible to please God without faith. Get that. It is impossible to please God without faith. Two words. Impossible and please. Two words that show up. Here's what impossible means. Can't happen. <laughs> it is impossible to please God without faith. It would be like me saying something to you like, um, hey, to count of three, I want everyone in the church and everyone who's listening to us to hold their breath for 10 minutes. Ready? One, two, three. Kind of happen, right? Not going to happen. You can't hold your breath for 10 minutes. You will collapse and whatever, fall, whatever. Now, all I know is this: you can't humanly do 10 minutes of no holding your breath because it's not going to work for you. It's impossible. It's impossible for all of us at the count of three to start levitating. It's impossible, right? It doesn't make any sense. Listen, listen to this. It's impossible to please God. The word please, what does the word please mean? It means to completely satisfy. It is impossible, not going to happen, to completely satisfy who? God. Without what? Faith. So can I just tell you, my friends who are sitting here in church this morning, if you want to please God, you better figure out this faith thing. Because everything else you're trying to do to make him happy isn't going to do the thing that's going to make him happy. Wink, wink. You get it, the idea of pleasing God. Here's what we do. We do everything but faith to try to please God. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll go home and read my Bible for a little while because that's going to make God happy. That's not going to make God happy. It's going to help you become more holy. 
I know, I'll just pray. I'll just pray a little bit and somehow that'll make God happy. It's not going to make God happy. It's going to get you more in line with who God is and maybe help you out. I know, I know what I'll, I'll serve at the church. That's what I'll do. I'll just, I'll serve. And when I serve, somehow that's going to make God happy. Let me just help you. That's not making God happy. It might help you become more holy, but it's not going to make God happy. How do you please God? Faith. Because you got to have faith. Sorry. 80. There we go. Everybody's over 40 is like, I know that song. But can I do this? You have to step into this place called faith. What is faith? Faith is this substance that you must have. Hmm. You know what I love about the Bible? Is that you can take words and turn them the other way around. So if it's impossible to please God without faith, with faith it is also impossible to displease him. In other words, I think, it's, I, think God, I think God just wants us to trust him. I love it when Dave came up here this morning and was talking about what he was talking about. And he says, let's just trust him. I love the fact that God is okay with us just trying stuff. And us just stepping out and trusting him. I think, he, I think God gets a kick out of us just trusting him. Why? Because you do realize that the very fundamental core of this thing called trust, of this thing called love, is this thing called trust. You cannot have love without trust. You must have trust. Why is it that we do what we do in this thing called Christianity? Because we want to help build within you this thing called trust so that you can experience this thing called love. I love this idea of faith because he tells us it is impossible. Now, here's the great thing. Here's what it does not say. It doesn't say you must have perfect faith. It doesn't say you must have uh, getting it right most of the time faith. He doesn't even say you, you have to have never making mistakes kind of faith. He just says, have faith. That's what pleases me. Like, step out and trusting me. I just got a funny feeling. I think it's high time that we just step out in some crazy places of faith. I just think it would be good for some of us, for some of you, to step out in a place called faith. What does that mean? Well, I always tell people this. What's the thing that God's been whispering for you to do? Just do that. Do that thing. If it's trusting you with uh, leaving a job to go to another one or, or whatever it is. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but what are the things that God has spoken to you somehow, giving you the nudge, talk to you through your spouse, talk to you through someone who's a friend of yours. You just kind of get this confirmation in your gut that you're supposed to give her a shot. There's no other way to please God except through faith. I mean, he's happy with us because you breathe and blink well. I love it that he loves us that way. But, but to please him, to completely satisfy this place called faith, and he wants us to step out into it. I would just be so bold as to say, what would happen if some of us took some reckless steps and saying, God, I'm just going to trust you? Nah, that's crazy. Because I don't want to do it in blind faith. I'm not going to be dumb. I mean, I'm not going to be blind faith. I always wonder, like, is there any other kind? Is, it, is there any other kind of faith that you can step into that doesn't require you knowing what the outcome's, well, going to be? Because you, you step into it knowing what the outcome should be because you're not stepping in completely blind faith. You're stepping into the light of faith, which is, you know, God's on the other side of that thing. Hmm. Faith. I think it's interesting. I love the fact that we can step out in places of faith. Remember when King David got that crazy idea of building a temple for God? And he's like, you know what, God, I know you love me and I love you. I'm a man after your own heart. We both know that, but I'm going to build a house for you. Remember that King David did that. He said, I'm going to build a house for you. And God said, 
after he began the process of talking to God, God, I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a big fat house for you. You're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be incredibly elaborate and, and all the wonderful things. And God says, David, I love that you love that. But no, I don't want you to do it. You pleased me with your faith. Here's what you can do, David. You can get all the supplies for your son because I want him to build it. I love it because it's as if God just said to him, hey, I love the fact that you stepped out in faith. Now that you stepped out in faith, let me help steer you a little bit and realize like you're not the one to build it. Your son's going to actually build it. Or, 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 or this idea of Peter stepping on the water, right? He gets out there and steps on the water. And I love the fact that, he, that, that, he, that halfway out there or somewhere out there, he failed. He blew it, doubted, started to sink or whatever it was that happened. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him and said, listen, boy, way to go. When was the last time you stepped out in a crazy place of faith? I always feel like people in our faith steps, we always have to have our hedges, our bets hedged a little bit. We always want to hedge the bets a little bit, make sure that we have just a fall, our backup plan. I know too many pastors who, who say that to me often. Well, you know what you should do before you step into ministry is you should have some sort of a this so to, to, just in case it blows apart. In case your, your ministry falls apart, you need to have something to fall back on. You need a career to fall back on. <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I remember hearing that early on in ministry, and perhaps there's some wisdom in that, but for me, I, I knew if I had a backup plan, I'd be leaning on it, literally. I remember, I remember leaving Costco. I was there for 11 years. I worked at the distribution center, so we didn't, have, we didn't have people coming in. It was just trucks and stuff. We got stuff in, sent it out. And it was an amazing place. I loved it. Good people I worked with, but I didn't see customers. In Jesus' name, it was awesome. But, 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 but I remember working there, right? And, and I remember all the people. It was a super well-paying job. It was, had great benefits. And there's no good reason to leave Costco. Trust me. They're still an amazing company. I, I love it. Anyway, I remember, I remember walking to my boss and saying, hey, listen, I planted a church, and I, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit Costco and go full-time at the church. And I remember this this journey of stepping in. And I remember people coming up to me, even the day I was walking out the door. The distribution center for Costco is still in Sumner. I know right where it is. I know right where the door is. The door at that time was painted red. And, and I remember, I remember walk, grabbing the knob of the door and people just on the way out saying, you'll be back. You'll be back. I remember grabbing the doorknob. I could cry. Holding on to it saying, I will never touch this doorknob again. I just remember thinking to myself, there's nothing wrong if I would have went back. But I just remember thinking, I'll never touch it again. Opened the door, walked out, walked down the steps, got into my truck and drove away. And why was that so important to me? There, there was a part of my burning the boats that mattered to me. And I knew that if I knew that there was a backup plan, that I'd always know when the storms got a little high, I was going back to the backup plan. See, there's something about faith that, that forces you to actually step into something that you know that there is no backup plan. There's a moment where you're stepping into faith. And I think some of us hedge our bets so much that we always leave a backup plan. We always step out into this place called faith and say, well, we just want to make sure we get that credit card because that will be the, the cush just in case everything goes south. I want to make sure we get this, this, because some of us, I know people who have like the 401k plan and the backup 401k plan and the spare investment to the 401k plan just in case that doesn't work out right. But I ain't giving it church. <laughs> Because it's too, all that, there's this idea, right? There's just always this hedge of our bets. Instead of saying, God, I'm just going to full on trust you with everything that I am. Hmm. Characteristics of faith. First of all, it's a substance. Second of all, it's a requirement. And number three, faith is an action. Love this. Matthew 14 said, when his disciples 
his disciples. We find them in a boat. It says in Matthew 14, 22, immediately after this, Jesus made his disciples get back into a boat, cross over to the other side of the lake. Afterward, he went up on a hill to pray. Night fell. Meanwhile, the disciples were in real trouble far away from land. The strong wind had risen. Guys, remember this. These guys were career fishermen. A lot of them were career fishermen. They had been out on the Sea of Galilee. I even wonder at times, because there's part of me, I'm a realist when I read my Bible. I, I mean, I stop and I, I want to ask the hard questions. Like I, I was sitting there reading my Bible thinking to myself, because they were career fishermen and their dads and their grandpas and who knows who else was career fishermen at the Sea of Galilee, all they did was fish. They knew that, they knew that this, at the very least, they knew that weather happened. They knew weather would happen. They didn't know when, but they knew weather would happen. They didn't have the meteorology that we have, but they knew something, right? You get a funny feeling that at some point they could figure out, we know today that the storms on the Sea of Galilee take place between 6 and 9 p.m., but we know that. We know, like, we know that. So, so they could have figured that out. My guess is, is that some storms probably last a little longer. Nevertheless, I just wonder if these career fishermen thought to themselves, when Jesus said, hey, get in back into the boat. Crowds go away, you get in the boat and go to the other side. I got a funny feeling that some of them might have said to themselves, um, there could be a storm. Like, this is when storms happen. You, you know, last time we were, you're not going to be with us, so that's dumb. I don't know. But I love that that's not recorded. <laughs> I love that there wasn't a pause. I love that they just put the bow of the boat into the direction they were supposed to go, and they went. They got into the boat, and they went. They just left. They did what Jesus told them. Jesus said, get into the boat and go. They got into the boat and went. Man, let me tell you this. Have you ever looked at the disciples and said, you know what? Sometimes they were flaky. Let me tell you this. Perhaps. But the, I can tell you this for sure. When Jesus said it, they did it. And they just went. And imagine if they knew that a storm could possibly happen. Perhaps the wind was already starting to a blow. Who knows? All I know is this, is they got into the boat anyway. They rowed away or whatever it was they did. They got into the boat and they left. Headed right into what it was that Jesus told them to head into. Because they were obedient. Let me tell you this, faith requires an action step, a step of obedience. Let me tell you this, three truths about actions of faith. First of all, faith is hard work. Faith is hard work. During the night, I love this, it was the third watch. What do you know about the third watch? Keep in mind that there were people, these guys were, these guys were sea people, so they understood, right? The third watch of the night, it was between six and nine was the first watch, Nine at midnight was the second watch. Midnight to three was the third watch. And three to probably whatever it was, six or, or whatever it was, the next, what was like the last watch. The third watch shows between midnight and three o'clock in the morning. Let me tell you this, nothing worse than being in a storm between midnight and three in the morning. Right? Some of you have had those storms in your nice, sweet bedroom. And you're just, the storms, you know the storms that never stop, those ones in your head? Those are the worst at that time of night. During the night, the disciples were in their boats in the middle of the lake. I love this. Faith is not easy. I remember a year ago, while I was on my team, I had an amazing, I still have an amazing team, but at the time, I had Omar, Pastor Omar, and Pastor Katie. Pastor Katie was our children's pastor, who literally, with all the families that attend our church, that the, there, there's, there's, I always tell her, I was like, Katie, do you realize that you're pastoring 
two-thirds of our church. I mean, there's a lot of humans that are connected to you. And I said, your job is to pastor these people. And I helped her learn how to plant a small church back there in the children's ministry. And I was trying to help her. She became an amazing pastor. She came to me about a year ago and she said, hey, Pastor Lance, I feel like my husband and I are supposed to go back to Australia. And I was like, first of all, um, I think that's not God. And, and second of all, no, I, I just, I said, you know, I think it might be Jesus. Let's pray about it. So we prayed about it. And when we, it was probably a little better than a year ago. We made a plan. And the plan was going to take about nine months to a year to unroll. And then we were going to send her off, which we did two months ago. And we were going to have this big moment and this time, and that was going to happen. But then Omar, Pastor Omar, who was the executive pastor, says to me, hey, one day I want to plant a church. And so we looked into planting a church and what it would take. And it was a longer distance away than, than he's no longer with us, right? It was a long, he's not dead, by the way. He planted a church. Or he took over a church. Thought I'd spell it out. So he just no. Anyway, so I have Pastor Omar, Pastor Katie, all within the confines of about six months that eventually ended up leaving because my pastor, Dave, came up to me and said, I feel like, you, I feel like Omar is supposed to go take over a church in Federal Way. Now I have on my mind, Katie's supposed to leave in a year. Omar's now going to leave in a couple months. Oh, dear God, what am I supposed to do? Because I'll just level with you. If, imagine you running your job, your business, and you taking two amazingly strong horses out of the race. And then bringing in a bunch of people that don't know your culture who are equally strong, but putting them in and saying, like, everything, I'll figure it out, right? Can I just tell you this? Terror! Fearful? Uh-huh. Scared? Absolutely difficult? You have no idea. Jesus and I had some conversations. I was like, come on. And the Lord just goes, I mean, there's a lot of things that he reminded me of, but not the least of which is trusting him. Today, can I tell you this? Omar's pastoring an amazing church in Federal Way, an amazingly successful pastor. I cannot wait to see the outcome of years and years of ministry through him. Katie and Chad in Australia today, pastoring and ministry. Amazing, right? All the wonderful things that are happening. Today, five new people on our staff, and we're figuring it out. Can I tell you this? Stepping out in faith is not easy. Someone say Amen. You have to step out in faith to please God. Why? It's not easy. I wish it was. I wish you could just snap your fingers and say it's super easy. Faith is not easy. It's just what pleases God. Number two truth about actions of faith. Faith can't be compared. Faith cannot be compared. It says in verse 29, So Peter stepped over the side of the boat and walked on the water. I'm always amazed in this point. When Peter steps over, walks on the water... And then Jesus looks at him and says, as he begins to sink, where's your faith? How come you didn't trust me? I don't know about you, but if I were Peter, I would have said, I'm the only one that got out of the boat. The other 11 ones you should be having this conversation with. I mean, I had something. Come on. Don't tell me you wouldn't have thought that. Right? I love that faith isn't graded on a curve. Faith isn't graded on a curve. We don't just get to be compared to, well, our pastor's stepping out in faith, so we're, eh. You realize that my step in faith just happens to be a little more visible from yours. <laughs> my question for you is, is where's your faith? Where's your step in faith? Do you have any idea how difficult those decisions were for me to do? But pastor, you're supposed to just send out people. It's awesome. How many of you have been to churches that sent out as many people as we send out? You should hear the conversations I have in hallways with some of you. Can we please not send so many people out? I'm going to send them. 
We're gonna, re- we're gonna change this planet because people are gonna find Jesus because you're being loved, mended, trained, and sent. When's that gonna happen? I don't know. When God tells us. And I can tell you this, as your pastor, I will be reckless in my faith. I'll trust him. But what about you? Cortez stands on the shores and he tells all of these people, burn the boats. Burn the boats. Leave no room for turning back. What are the boats in your life that need to be burned today? That, that, that thought in your head that if I, if, I, if I step into that area of trusting God, I won't, have, I won't have enough of whatever it is that you think you're lacking. But what is that boat that you're holding on to just, to just to hold on to just in case? Can I just be so bold as to tell you, if you want to please God, burn that boat and step into a place of trust and say, God, I believe. Can I tell you this this morning? I just feel like the Lord wants me to tell you this this morning. There's some of you this morning that your step in faith has nothing to do with standing up and moving to a different direction. Your step in faith has everything to do with telling that person that, that secret you've been holding on to that thing that you've been hanging on to that's gnawing at you, eating you up inside, and God's saying, be set free and talk about it. And step in faith. It'll scare you. But get it off your chest and find freedom that God intended for you to find. Amen. Oh my, dear God, whatever. Jesus, I know your spirit is here right now. I have no doubt. I know your Holy Spirit is moving. Father, I pray right now that you would help us to settle the deal, to find ultimate sila, to find peace in the middle of a storm, that there are men and women here who are listening to this or the sound of my voice that are holding on to things Holding on, God, just de- deciding that what you said was this or what you say is, and, and somehow convincing themselves that by holding on is better. But Lord, I believe this morning you're telling us to step in faith, to step in faith, to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.